News. 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 New York City. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. My name is Alex Brooklyn. As usual, I am here with our two hosts, Professor Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. The year is 2019, and New York City runs on algorithms and databases. Automated decision systems, or ADS, have been around for a while and affect the city in everything from deciding what building to inspect to who gets placed in what school. The NYPD and law enforcement use it in facial recognition and predictive policing. These algorithms invisibly affect our daily lives in both small and large ways. Many agree that there are bias built into these algorithms, which skews the automated decision-making and stacks the odds against certain demographics like women and people of color. Remember how in the 1970s the Bronx burned down? In part, that was because the city and the FDNY hired a company called RAND to calculate factors of response times and geography in order to root out, quote, redundancies in service, end quote. They were trying to cut costs. But the methods are said to have been flawed and stacked against the poor neighborhoods. So guess what happened? Well, you don't have to guess what happened. The Bronx burned down. In this brave new world, the privacy of our citizenry is eroding. Not only is your current privacy at risk, but also your past privacy. More on that is Harry Siegel. Do you remember that car ride you took three years ago when you met up with that guy who ended up being part of a criminal case you read about in the papers? Maybe that wasn't you, but it's one of our listeners. Anyways, if the NYPD is knocking on your door and you're trying to figure out why, here's something sort of cool and interesting. Your past privacy, things that have already happened, may not be so private. It turns out, as we have more and more memory, more and more storage for that memory, and more and more processing power, that the questions about what the state can see inside your home and around it and as you're driving aren't ones that are only extending forward into a, you know, a Dark Mirror episode, if that's the name of the TV show, but also backward. I find that incredible and incredibly creepy. Other people's old data and information from the past is suddenly part of a massive semi-public, semi-private surveillance state that can use this for whatever it thinks is good. I remember Mayor Bloomberg talking about the cameras downtown and saying uh, privacy is dead, just get over it. And uh, he may have been onto something. I'd like to think that our government is going to be thinking and working about this now and making sure for all of us non-serial killers that the answer isn't just, if you haven't done anything wrong ever, you have nothing to fear, but it's going to have some protections um, for the sorts of privacy that we've been able to assume up until now and as we've been weaving decades of digital breadcrumbs. Right now, that doesn't appear to be the case. The NYPD would prefer we don't know too much about it or anything that's happening inside whatever black box. My view is dark, but uh, it often is. I have two children. I don't sleep enough. Um, joining us to discuss this and uh, lay out a little of our dystopia now is... Albert Fox Khan and Liz O'Sullivan of StopSpying.org. Albert? Albert Albert. So you walk out of your apartment and you're photographed. You walk into the subway station, you're photographed. You walk into your office building, you're photographed. And those photos go into databases. Databases run by the NYPD. Databases that scan your face. Use artificial intelligence. Try to recognize it. For most of us, it doesn't matter. But for some of us, for some New Yorkers, it means a knock on the door from the cops. 
It means being falsely accused of a crime. It means potentially even being arrested because we have flawed and even racist algorithms sometimes deciding who is a suspect and who's not. The city's been trying to fix it. It's had an automated decision systems task force for close to a year now, but the task force has gone off the rails. This thing that once promised to make us a national leader in algorithmic accountability hasn't really done its job. And now we're falling behind cities and states all across the country. And it's not clear if we're actually going to be serious about fighting algorithmic bias and how it's impacting New Yorkers. The problem is we don't know where it's being used yet. We, we have fears. We know, for example, it's being used in facial recognition, but we're not sure all of the ways. We know the NYPD uses it, but we don't know how often. We don't know where. And we don't know how they check to make sure they're actually getting it right and not putting the wrong people behind bars. We're worried about algorithms impacting schools. Who gets assigned to which classroom? Who gets assigned to which school? We're worried about it in city hiring. We're worried about it in how people get audited. We're worried about it in every single part of government. We have evidence from police departments across the country, including the NYPD, that shows that when police departments try to use predictive policing, when they try to predict where crimes are happening in the future, it's often based off of biased data from where they have enforced the law in the past. We know communities of color are over-policed. We know poorer communities are over-policed. We know this skews the data. And so when you have that dirty data feeding these predictive policing algorithms, it just bakes in bias into the future. Hi, uh, thanks for having us. I'm Liz O'Sullivan. I'm the resident technologist, I guess. Is that the title we agreed on? Yes. <laughs> okay, great. That one then at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project with Albert. Hi, I'm Albert Foxconn, and I'm the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Uh, we're a nonprofit based at the Urban Justice Center uh, in here in New York. So I, I read some science fiction. <laughs> What's the state of dystopia now, and what should New Yorkers be uh, thinking about it, and what are elected representatives doing? I think primarily they should be thinking that we should all be scared, because yeah. really the situation is pretty bleak right now. We have all of these artificial intelligence tools that are making decisions that impact our lives, whether it's who gets arrested, whether it's potentially issues around where polling sites go, where who gets to go to a specific school, all of these fundamental choices about everyday life. And increasingly, they're being made by algorithms, by unaccountable, opaque technological systems. So that's why it's really important that we come together as a city and figure out well, how do these algorithms work? Do they work well? And crucially, are they biased? Because increasingly, we know that artificial intelligence isn't a panacea. It isn't something that just ends bias. It sometimes bakes bias in mm -hmm. and makes things even worse than when humans are making the decisions. Yeah, I think one thing that really worries me is the speed at which the technology is progressing and how quickly it's making its way into consumer products that are being marketed aggressively towards our law enforcement agencies. Um, there's a company called Axon, for instance, and they sell two things, tasers and body cams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, they're, they're the first ones on the line. They just filed a patent 
patent for facial recognition technology. They're trying to put it into every cop in the country. And in some cases, they're even giving away the cameras for free in exchange for, like, you know, the subscription to their cloud storage that ends up costing quite a lot. Wait, so we have body cameras rolling out here. Mm -hmm. There's all of this footage. There's software that says it can recognize faces We've just been reading in the Times that in China, there's now software that can recognize dangerous ethnicities or is trying to. Who owns that footage? Is that governments at least? Or is this these companies? Or or where's that going? In a lot of cases, I think it's unclear. Um, I think, you know, there's something that happens pretty often in the software industry, which will exchange product for data ownership. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we did that in New York, too, at some point. Well, one of the things is that it all depends on the contracts. It all depends on the terms at which the state gets these tools. So let me give you an example. When Cuomo rolled out facial recognition on the bridges and tunnels, he thought it was cool. He thought it was this fun thing that was super high tech. And we asked, who gets the data? Who owns the data? How can that data be used by the vendor? What are the protections to make sure this doesn't get shared with the federal government, with ICE? And all we got was silence. And that is increasingly what we see, that we have these agreements with these large companies to potentially get all of our images, to potentially be an arm of the government for policing, and we don't know the terms under which they're getting that data. So you started off saying that we should be alarmed. On a scale of 1 to 10, how alarmed should people of color be? Because (laughs) something tells me (laughs) that this information that's probably not created by immigrants or black folks or Latinx people or undocumented is constructed in such a way where the algorithms are probably disproportionately going to affect communities of color, which I find very troubling. And many of our electeds who are not people of color don't see the problem. So how alarmed should we be and what is the recourse and what can communities do to sort of slow the tide that clearly is already coming into the shores? Well, Liz can talk to some of the technical details about what we know is that these systems can get it wrong a lot, and they get it wrong a lot more often Uh for women and for communities of color. That the way the algorithms are constructed, they are racist, just to put it bluntly. So this is always my big question. We ran a uh, a piece of the Daily Beast making the case the other way, titled, uh, Bots are Terrible at Recognizing Black Faces. They found, I think, six black members of Congress out of 28 women were criminals. Let's keep it that way. Do we want to be improving these recognition systems, making sure that they're fair, or pointing to this as a fundamental problem and a reason to stand athwart technology and yell, (laughs) stop? I think it's a good point. I think the bias makes us all stop and think, like, what will the impacts of this be on the different communities that are impacted by it? If we don't fix this bias, if we aren't successful at stopping facial recognition from being put into every camera in New York City, then a higher error rate on black faces or female faces will mean that black people and women are disproportionately frequently arrested or hassled by the cops or taken into custody and charged with crimes. And I don't think anybody wants that. And we know this is already happening. The NY PD uses facial recognition to take different crime scene photos, different photos from around the city, and to compare it with the database. And they get back over 200 possible matches. And then they go through that list, and they don't use some scientific method. They have a bunch of people who stand around a monitor and say, I think that's the guy. Mm-hmm. And when they think it's the guy, do they use some sort of method to check it? Do they have a double-blind approach? Do they have confirmation studies? No. They just send that out to the detectives on a DD5 saying, hey, 
We think this may be the guy. And they're careful about saying this isn't probable cause to arrest someone. But what happens when you show that image to an eyewitness? And that eyewitness says, well, it kind of looks like the guy, sure. Right. And then that eyewitness is your basis for an arrest. That They've boasted of thousands of people being arrested on the basis of facial recognition. Although the- they say n- not solely on the basis. So, so, so they're trying to sort of s- split that baby, if you will. Here's my question is, who is in this database of faces that the NYPD has, and how are people getting there? We don't have a full answer. We know that the NYPD doesn't have access to DMV records. So it's not every driver's license image, but they are running it against all the mugshots. So that's used the sample because we know that people of color in the city are far more likely to be arrested than white New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. I believe pistol licenses are in it. And it's sort of this cobbled together database of images from around the state. What does our good mayor say about all this stuff? I mean, I was at Gracie Mansion last night. I I talked to the administration a lot. I haven't heard a whole lot from this administration about the problems with the facial recognition system. What I have heard is a lot of excuses for why the ADS task force, the citywide automated decision system task force, isn't doing the job it was supposed to do. Because this was something created by the city council, by law, that was designed to create a framework for fighting algorithmic bias. And who's on this ADS task force? Do we know? So there are 18 members. For the first seven months or so, I was a member of it, not officially appointed, but I attended on behalf of my old employer, Care New York. And so it would be academics, city officials, all together in a room trying to figure out what the heck is ADS? How the hell do we regulate it? And unfortunately, we've gone through more than half the time allotted for this task force, and they're still just sitting around in a room saying, what the heck is ADS? What the hell do we do about it? So real quick, what the heck is ADS and what the hell should we be doing about it? Yeah, so automated decision systems or support, depending on what the S stands for. In different government organizations, you can have algorithms that are trying to, in a lot of cases, assess the risk of a certain situation from happening, whether that's the risk of recidivism or um, you know, the risk of a child being endangered. How do we allocate resources or decide whether or not you, you know, what happens to you as an individual? So there's historical data that usually is collected by the city, which is rife with bias in a lot of cases. Predictive policing, for instance, is a big automated decision system. And so it's like, where do we send the cop cars? Well, how do you base that? It's based off of all the previous incidences of crime that have been recorded. Only the ones that have been recorded are the ones where the cops went there. And cops may have gone there because they're just, you know, more prone to visit black neighborhoods than they would white ones. And that's often when the NYPD talks about deploying resources, they'll say this is what the community is asking for. Right. And then this sort of becomes a... Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And bad data gives you bad results. Right. Even when you're using a good algorithm. One of the issues we see with the ADS is the members have been screaming for months, we want to know what the city is already using. We want to know what tools are already in the field, because how do you create a rule book for how how you police these systems if you don't know what they're doing. But the city's refused. When we say the city, what's the commissioner O'Neill say about this? Is he in the front of this? I mean, so far in the process, it's mainly been the mayor's office of operations that's been running the show on this, along with the Commission on Human Rights. But we know that a lot of the resistance is coming from the PD. We know that the PD has systematically tried to fight public oversight, whether it's 50A, 
mm-hmm. whether it's their fight against FOIL, whether it's any of these initiatives to try to block public access and accountability. Narrative Voice, 50A is a longstanding law involving public records and who has access to them that was just reinterpreted to mean that police disciplinary records can't be seen basically by anyone. FOIL is, um, I use tinfoil on top of my head to block information, but you can also use it as a freedom of information law to uh, to see public documents. That, that is a very obnoxious process in New York. And this mayor, his law department has repeatedly gone to court, gone to the Court of Appeals, gone to our highest court to fight to reinterpret the law, to block public access under the freedom of information law to some of the most important information about how our city is being policed. And you also briefly mentioned the Commission on Human Rights. So how are they involved in all of this? So this is one of the mayor's commissioners. Mm -hmm. I know her office just a touch. What exactly does that office do in response to this? So they've been one of the co-chairs of the uh, task force. And, And I have to say, I work with the Commission on Human Rights a lot. And they're amazing. They've grown tremendously over the last few years. And as someone who sues people for harassment and discrimination and... Right, and they just launched the, like, wild black campaign to sort of combat sort of all the horrible things that happened to you as a New Yorker while black. So this doesn't seem to be congruent necessarily. Well, Well, I think they have incredibly good motives in how they approach this work. But I think the reality of city politics is that the NYPD has the trump card. Mm. When it comes to reforming policing, when it comes to transparency, when it comes to even AI, you can have these agencies on board. They're willing to do a lot until you hit that NYPD firewall. Why? We have a mayor who came to office saying that police reform is going to be essential. We now have a prosecutor in Brooklyn and one coming in Queens, potentially, who say that justice reform is essential. We have a council that, like, walks out of its own meetings and dies in to protest the police. So why is the NYPD this firewall and how has it remained that way in the midst of all this? It's been one of the biggest frustrations of my career because you're right. Let's look at the mayor's track record. So we had right to know. This was one of the most basic reforms you could imagine for police. Hey, you got to give people a business card with your name, your badge number, and an explanation of why you were stopped. Did the mayor get behind him? No. He fought like crazy to block it. He introduced an alternative bill. He tried to sabotage it by having these parallel legislative efforts. And still, right to know is hitting headwinds because of that. What happened with our sanctuary city bills? 2017, we had two bills that promised to legislate that New York would be a sanctuary city. It was huge news. They were great about getting the talking points. What did the bills actually do? They exempted the NYPD. They said, we're going to have sanctuary city protections. We're going to have prohibitions on sharing information with ICE unless you're law enforcement. And time and again, anytime there's an effort to try to regulate the NYPD, the mayor's office is blocking those. It's pushing back. And really, given the platform he ran on, given what he promised, given what he stood for as a city council member, as public advocate, it's kind of shocking. Right. Well, quick shout out to our friends and colleagues from DocumentedNY.com who came on the podcast a few months ago and sort of walked us through some of those tensions between ICE, the court systems, and regular New Yorkers who don't have protections. I also think it's pretty interesting when the mayor was on New York One the other night and they were asked about sanctuary cities and he essentially said, we're going to fight it tooth and nail in the courts. And it's like, that's actually not what the cover of the Daily News said. So (laughs) that's interesting. All these other mayors are saying... And Trump is offering this mannequin 
trick choice. Mm-hmm. Um, all these other mayors are like, give us everyone. And the Daily News is saying, give us everyone. And the mayor, I think reasonably as an administrator, maybe less so as a, uh, as a moral leader, is like, we're going to take this to court and, and, and show you. But look, here's my fundamental question with the NYPD. I think about this a lot. And every time we have reformers on from different parts of the city and activists and nerds and nerdivists and and everyone else. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We we have this reformer mayor. The council has moved significantly to the left. There's no real base of Republican power in the city. And this has not impacted the NYPD. There seems to be some implicit set of arrangements, at least up until now, mm-hmm. where if if crime stays down and there are not the sorts of abuses that dominate the headlines, and then when there are and the, those pass, that efforts to legislate reform consistently founder. And so mm-hmm. one of your issues is that there's this task force, and this task force, as we were talking previously, has become increasingly opaque. Yep. That is, I mean, that's like you're seven speed bumps away from anywhere. The the task force that's supposed to be helping us set up rules of the road for future legislation that the NYPD can now fight, like we don't know what's happening inside that task force. Mm-hmm. That's a long way from a better framework from a reformist perspective. Like, why is this? There have been people suing the NYPD, putting these pressures on cyclically for decades. But at a moment when all the forces in the city are to the left, the department seems to have been either ahead of this or immune from it, depending on your perspective. Well, let's look at what happened when we tried to pass the Post Act in 2017. So this is the bill that said, hey, when the NYPD gets money from federal government, from private donors to deploy surveillance equipment, to deploy anti-terrorism equipment, we aren't going to stop that. We just need to know what tools they're getting and how they're protecting privacy. And Rory Lantzman asked them in a hearing, who gets to control the balance between privacy and security? Is it the NYPD or the elected officials? And they refused to answer. And so he asked them again, and they refused to answer. And he asked them a third time, and he called them obtuse, and they refused to answer. And that's the sort of mindset we see with the PD. And we do see a lot of people who are maybe willing to take them on when it comes to issues like stop and frisk. But when you hear counterterrorism, when they bang the table and invoke 9-11, and they literally invoke 9-11 for protections that have nothing to do with it, right? it scares people. And it it terrifies them. I think just like it took a generation to have progressive politicians who are willing to stand up to the PD on neighborhood policing, on broken windows, it takes a long time to get over the post-9-11 fear that if we stand up for civil rights, we're somehow putting ourselves at risk. But the private money here, this also goes, by the way, for paying for various commissioners' memberships to various clubs and nice dinners and things like that. And that's a long-standing tradition. I look at Baltimore. They use private money to set up this awesome surveillance system over the sky that could go forward and backward in time. So if I, Harry Siegel, do some bad thing today, and I drove here, which I didn't, they can look at my car going backward and see where it's been over the last three months. They launched this as a surveillance system over the city from technology that was built by private contractors for the military in Iraq and ran it without mentioning it to lawmakers because they had this bundle of private money. We don't really know what's happening with a lot of the private money here. We get little hints when these guys are trying to sell the donors. Uh, when something like Occupy Wall Street happens and a bunch of like really cool science fiction tools are deployed. What is that noise I can't hear yet is causing me pain? Um, what is this giant panopticon structure uh, that, that now emerges above the crowd? But that's it. Like These are hints and tastes. Like, should this private money be there at all? Is, is that something that you're setting the predicate maybe 20 years from now? 
this does become transparent. I'm sorry to go on. I just I feel very pessimistic. And as you're bringing these things up, they're reminding me. Right. Why? I mean, I got my start in activism opposing excessive drug sentences at a time when people thought there would never be any political willingness to take it on. When there, people thought there would never be any willingness to take on stop and frisk. And these things change. They take time, but they change. And as we become more aware of the cost of sacrificing privacy from whether it's scandals with Facebook or other private companies or Russians interfering with our election, when we get a better sense of how powerful this data collection is, I think it really changes the public willingness to take on the PD's ability to police itself. So at some point, we need Commissioner O'Neill to come on this podcast to sort of account for all this nonsense. So Liz, where are we? I mean, from your vantage point, you're the one who writes about sort of the technology in the weeds, I guess. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? So Albert laid out (laughs) basically the scenario, which frightens me as a black person. You know, I always tell people, I'm like, there are two things I care about in this world, black people and cities. And so this is a a horrible sort of clashing of the two things that I love. But like, where are we right now? And has the horse left the barn as far as technology? No, I don't think so. I think there's still time, but we're having a moment right now. So one of the examples of this technology not working very well is actually happening right here in New York. And people are complaining about how there's this presumably very expensive pilot program on the RFK bridge using facial recognition, and it identifies exactly zero faces. And the fact that this technology still isn't perfect and that the people are actually reporting that these things are happening gives us an opportunity to look at it and say, should we exert some power and push back and request that our government actually try to ban facial recognition. There are a number of test cases right now. San Francisco is looking to ban facial recognition outright. In Washington state, they're looking to have a a really robust privacy plan. But what's disconcerting is the way that big tech is pushing against it. So Mm -hmm. Microsoft and Amazon stand to gain a lot from facial recognition Mm -hmm. being a legal option for them. But we see them actually going on record in the state of Washington saying that this should be available, that they're fighting for the ability to, to have cities and even private products put facial recognition to their products. And you said presumably very expensive. How would we find out what the actual dollar amount is? Well, in a lot of cases, it's advertised. So for instance, like a thousand predictions on Amazon recognition costs you a dollar. But if we're talking at scale, you know, a million will cost you a thousand dollars. And that's maybe, I don't know, an hour worth of inference on New York City. So you can do the math. And Uh there's actually been some litigation by civil rights groups to find out how much it costs. There was the recent decision about, back to my favorite acronym, FOIL, where the city was forced to reveal to the NYCLU how much it was spending for some of its surveillance technology. Okay. So we're part of a nationwide uh, consortium called the Electronic Frontier Alliance, where we work with EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, to work on these issues nationwide. And then ACLU has something called CCOPS. Everyone loves acronyms. uh, Civilian (laughs) Control of Police Surveillance. And that's a nationwide movement to get these laws enacted at the local level. And so these laws have been enacted in dozens of uh, cities. Some of them are strong, like the ones in Oakland, California, which require civilians to actually approve what spy tools are being used. That's what I was just about to ask you all. What cities are sort of leading the charge and what cities should we be looking to for solutions? 
Oakland was really uh, the starting point for a lot of this work, and they have one of the strongest bills. They've also looked at the Joint Terrorism Task Force and some of the other forms of federal cooperation, and their bill is the model for a lot of cities. Unfortunately, here in New York, we get into this wonky thing called curtailment, and so we can't even pass a strong bill like that off the bat. That's why with the Post Act, it's one of the weakest surveillance oversight bills in the country. One of the weakest, and still you have Commissioner Miller writing in the Daily News that it's going to cause another 9-11. Who's Commissioner Miller? Uh, So he's the Deputy NYPD Commissioner for Intelligence. Gotcha. And so, Liz, so Obama was famously known as the drone president. Mm. Can you talk to us about how drones and this AI technology are affecting us? Yeah, no, we're we're having a moment right now where um, drone technology is having an awakening where, you know, they're putting these SDKs, which is just like, it's a self-contained little software development kit that allows for you to do inference on a device, which means no longer do you need to have high definition definition video stream back to the United States before you identify a target and then presumably do something to it. Obviously, this is having to do with warfare uh, overseas, but that doesn't mean that we should think that for a second, like drone surveillance might make an appearance here in the United States. And I think there have been some examples where drone surveillance bills have kind of come on the field. Yeah, so here in New York City, we had the NYPD announcing it was going to launch more than a dozen drones late last year. As a concession to us noisy activists, they came up with some ground rules, but it wasn't nearly enough to make sure that these drones aren't going to be combined with facial recognition, combined with some of the other more problematic features, and used in a way that really curbs our ability to exercise our fundamental rights. So an algorithm, you're aware, is a series of rules that determine an outcome. Mm. We need to have some set of, of codes or rules for what people should do. There is necessarily both bias and discretion baked into any package there, where reformers have an interesting advantage sometimes that they can point to the flaws in any existing set of rules and they don't have to propose their own ones. So in the fight about stop and frisk, for instance, it was, this is too many, what would the right number be? Are there models for what better algorithms that are transparent look like and uh, like positive standards those can be held to, particularly when you're dealing with justice, law enforcement, and carceral issues? Um, It's worth mentioning that when we say algorithms, it means something slightly different when you're talking about artificial intelligence. You're saying a systematic organization of rules, but when you're doing machine learning, it may or may not have any of those kinds of deterministic rules. It's a probabilistic, just like think of it like a very fancy, very complex mathematical statistical equation. So its output maybe says, you know, I think that this is Harry, but we're like maybe 73% sure about it. And then if you were to try to figure out why um, we thought that this was Harry, you, you won't be able to. And there are some new mathematical techniques seeking to try to explain or basically create like a, a proxy model that's close enough to the machine learning model. So we don't know the set of rules to the extent there are rules. How is getting to the 73%? Yes, exactly. It's impossible for a human to know. And so modern explainability techniques are trying to create like a different model that's more simple, one where we can know and then have it give you the same output and then assess whether or not that was similar enough for your purposes. But the black box is a real big problem, especially when it comes to legality of a lot of these things. And there are techniques to explain how the tool works, but also to test for bias, to test for disparate impact, to test for all of these things that we want to avoid. And so there are roadmaps out there. And at the city council hearing on automated decision systems, 
times, we had a lot of experts proposing different things that we could test for as part of this process. We're talking about the field of fairness in machine learning, which is really nascent. It's only a couple years old. Um, and, you know, people like Joy Balamwini out of MIT and her whole crew in the Media Lab there, um, really women of color are the ones that brought this all to light. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise. So, okay. <laughs> Since people get this podcast in their inboxes in the morning, yeah. is there a silver lining on any of this information that you've just laid out for us? Just so we don't start everyone's Thursday off <laughs> with a don't, don't, don't. Drones are following you. Your face is being recognized when you cross a bridge and the mayor doesn't do anything about it. The thing about all of this, the thing that's so frustrating, this is all solvable. We could come together as a city and say, hey, we're going to be transparent about how this stuff works. Hey, we're going to listen to the experts about best practices because we know that humans get it wrong a lot. So we're going to try to make machines that are better. We have a lot of potential here to actually improve things. The problem is that because you have all the opposition to transparency, to accountability, to public engagement, that we're heading down a very different path. So I guess, Corey, Speaker Corey Johnson, if you're listening, um, can you have your folks on the tech and data committee and city council <laughs> give us a shout so we can figure this out? Um, and also, obviously, Commissioner O'Neill and Bill de Blasio. At me. <laughs> slide into my DMs, Commissioner O'Neill. We need to chit-chat really quickly. <laughs> But you think that's private, and it may turn out in hindsight that that is a public oh, transmission owned by a private corporation yeah. that can pull it with others to understand things in aggregate and then trace them back to you. So watch out, professor. Watch out, commissioner. <laughs> right. Coming well, I mean, well, I, I have to say, like, I feel like I'm a lot more cautious, even in my texts. Mm-hmm. Shoot, to Harry and to Alex. I mean, like, I, you know. Those I don't, are cautious. <laughs> yeah. I don't know you if should. they're going to be on blast. Okay, be. so mm-hmm. how do people participate if our listeners... Listeners are all of a sudden getting a slight case of Thursday morning agita. How do they participate and sort of join in any efforts that you all are working towards? Or what are next steps? To grow weird mustaches, to foil the facial recognition. What are the most useful (laughs) things to do? Oh, gosh. Do we get like a face tattoo like Mike Tyson? Like what's what's going on? Well, uh, obviously, got to shamelessly plug our website, stopspying.org. Uh, stopspying.org. And we have a number of projects we're working on to actually make New York fairer, to make it better when it comes to tech and the law, and to give people the tools to fight back. Liz is working on a lot of different materials to help educate the public on how they can keep their data safe and the tools that are out there to help promote privacy. Spoiler alert, you can't. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, I'm I can't. Sorry, no, no. All your business no, no. is on Front Street. <laughs> wrap it in tinfoil, right? Yeah, wrap it in tinfoil, put it, you know, in your back pocket and never use it. That's the only solution. But no, I'm, I'm joking mostly. But, you know, I think, like, you know, writing to your city council people, like, get them interested. Tell them that you have a viewpoint on this. Privacy often, like, falls to the bottom of the big stack of problems that we're all dealing with. But there are people working on this at the state local at the federal level as well. There are some bills being discussed right now uh, about privacy, and it seems like it's a nonpartisan issue. So there is a lot of hope. Oh, okay. If you, if you want to pick up the phone, call city council to demand passage of the Post Act, call your assembly member and state legislator to demand the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. 
we have bills that can fix a lot of this. And is all of this on stopspying.org? Yep. Okay, stopspying.org. Thank you all for coming in and scaring the <laughs> Jesus out of us, but appreciate you. I feel like this should have been a Halloween episode. You yeah, know. well. <laughs> F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn's Rent Stabilized Apartment. And FAQ is brought to you by... Harry Siegel and myself, Christina Greer. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU. A special thank you this week goes to Liz O'Sullivan and Albert Fox Kahn of STOP. That's Surveillance, Technology, and Oversight Project. And you can find them at stopspying.org. A special thank you also to Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into the fact for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all. Have a good week. I love dirty data. Oh my God. That is the name of everything. I, I, I stole that from a friend of mine. So. That's a totally different podcast. <laughs>